Diverse voices. Unique sound. Not the same old thing. Different, different. This is NoCo FM. Please don't go. I need you so I... Hello, everyone, and welcome to Feminist Hot Dog, the news, humor, and cultural survival podcast by, for, and about women and people of all genders who experience sexism. I had the occasion recently to talk to a group of women that I meet with regularly about our values. This was a prompt in a workbook that we're all doing together. And one of the things we talked about is the tension and kind of dissonance that can occur when the way that we act or the way that we live is out of line with our values. And I recognize that sometimes there are circumstances outside of our control that might cause this to happen. But I think there really is something to the idea that when we're feeling off or unfulfilled, it's worthwhile to check in with ourselves and ask, what are my values? And is the way that I move through the world a reflection of that? I say all this because my guest today is someone who, since I've known her, has always inspired me with the way her life and her approach to her career align with what she believes. She's an award-winning educator of both children and adults, and she's writing her first book, which I hope every listener will pre-order as soon as it's available, whether you're a teacher or not, buy it for your favorite teacher. It's going to be brilliant uh, because she's brilliant, and I'm thrilled to have her here today. Uh, Please welcome Liz Kleinrock. Welcome to the show. Thank you so much for having me. So Liz, you were an elementary teacher in Los Angeles for many years. Um, How many years were you in the classroom? I was in the classroom for 10 years, um, two years in Oakland, California, and then eight in Los Angeles. You also have a social media platform called Teach and Transform, which we'll talk more about. So we know that you are a writer and a teacher, but tell us a little bit more about you. Um, When you meet people, what is important for them to know about you and your identity? Oh, well, thank you, Kimberly Crenshaw, for giving me the word intersectionality to really try to think about my identity and how I describe myself. Um, I am a female identifying transracial adoptee. Um, So I was born in South Korea and raised in a large white Jewish family in Washington, D.C. So I also identify as Jewish and I identify as an educator. Um, I think my identity is really quite a mix of the things that are innate about me, but also what I choose to do and how I choose to spend my time and um, what I'm passionate about and the things that I dedicate my life to. Yes, which I'm definitely excited to talk to you about today. We, speaking of what you've dedicated your life to, we met through a teaching award that you won for culturally responsive teaching. And I'm curious to hear about your journey with social justice education. Was was wanting to address real world issues like identity and justice in the classroom something that you brought with you to your career? Or was it something that kind of revealed itself to you as a need over the course of the time that you spent teaching? I think there is a healthy mix of both. Um, I definitely grew up in a very like global focused community. Like growing up in DC, I was very lucky to be very aware that the world exists far beyond just me and my immediate community. Um, but also growing up in a very privileged environment, attending private school, um, 
I was always told about the importance of philanthropy, of giving back, but I do think that was mainly from very much a savior perspective, rather than getting to know communities, living in certain communities and listening to what people there are already doing and how they would like to be supported, rather than imposing my own ideas about what I think people need. I mean, which definitely goes into the theme of feminism and, you know, what we think as people identify as women, what other people who identify as women should or shouldn't be doing. Um, So I do think there was a lot of learning and a lot of unlearning that had to go through this process Um, because I went to a school that really had everything. Like I was, I had no idea what it was to want when it came to my education. Um, And then when I started teaching in Oakland, being in schools that were the polar opposite of that, um, very much along the lines of the school to prison pipeline, children being yelled at, being told to just conform to the ideals of the school, what the adults wanted them to do, and really the lack of resources in the communities was a really um, intense experience for me. And I think that getting to know a lot of the kids and a lot of the families and then continuing my education when I attended grad school at UCLA that has such a strong focus on transforming public education, but really being embedded within these communities rather than being an outsider um, was a big shift in my own learning and understanding to start looking at schools and kids and families and communities through an asset lens versus a deficit lens, um, which was very much what I had grown up viewing. Um, And it's still a work in process. Like there's so much unlearning that needs to be done. You know, when you are used to being embedded in the status quo, when someone presents an idea that is different or revolutionary, it can be quite jarring. Um, And being able to check myself when I have those reactions and question, why am I thinking this way? Why am I reacting this way? Um, Instead of just listening. You have used the expression learning and unlearning a couple of times. And I think that that seems to dovetail a lot with the work that you do with Teach and Transform. So I'm hoping you can talk a little bit about that platform, how it started and how it's grown and what you feel or what your followers are reflecting to you that they are learning and unlearning along with you through Teach and Transform. Yes. So Teach and Transform just started as an Instagram account about two years ago, actually. It hasn't even existed for that long, Um, really because I was pretty sure that a lot of my friends and family were not super interested in me posting about, you know, like racial oppression and social injustice and education on my personal social media pages. Um, So I kind of wanted to create um, this alternate community where I could connect with other like-minded educators and share best practices and hear what other teachers were doing, because this work in schools can also feel very isolating if there aren't other uh, teachers or staff members who are really on board in your immediate community. Um, And I also wanted to start compiling my work as kind of a portfolio, um, but found that the things that I was doing with students and the conversations we were having and the lessons we were, um, you know, creating together really resonated with people. Um, And the more folks I met, the more confident I really grew that this was something special that other people should be able to learn about in order to have the same types of discussions and conversations with their kids. So I don't know if you know this, but we actually talked about one of your Teach and Transform posts on the very first episode of Feminist Hot Dog, uh, which was the consent anchor chart. So so Feminist Hot Dog was born um, in the immediate aftermath of the Brett Kavanaugh hearings. And I think if I'm not mistaken, that that anchor chart was also 
a reaction to that issue of non-consensual sexual um, assault being, well, sexual assault always being non-consensual, but consent and lack of consent being in the news um, kind of compelled you to talk about it with your students. Do you mind just giving us a little breakdown of that activity? Sure. Um, so like you said, it came about during the Kavanaugh hearings um, and also the Me Too movement. It was you know, it's really challenging to hear all of these stories about women who have been holding on, or not just women, but people who have experienced sexual harassment or assault, um, who have had to hold on to that pain and silence for decades and decades and decades until something happens that they are triggered so powerfully, they feel the need to come forward. Um, and just thinking that, wow, I can't do anything about the things that have happened in the past, but what kinds of tools and strategies and language could I equip my children, my students with to make sure that they're not in the same position in the future? Like, how can we get ahead of this and prevent it from happening? Um, and so a lot of the language and conversations I was having with my students are things that I think most teachers are already doing. Like we're already telling our kids not to hit, not to kick, not to ask for things with our hands, but rather use our words and to listen when somebody says no or please stop. Um, and really just connecting this like quote unquote adult vocabulary word of consent um, to the idea of establishing personal boundaries and also respecting people's personal boundaries. That the idea of consent is really grounded in permission and respect, not just sex the way that a lot of people think it is. Yeah, I really love that. And uh, it was interesting to see how the world reacted to that because it got picked up by a number of blogs and most of them were favorable. Some of them were not, um, but it definitely struck a nerve with a lot of, a lot of folks. And, um, and I think if I'm not mistaken, kind of helped bolster teach and transform. Oh yeah. Got, quite, got a a bit. Of, <laughs> quite a few followers. That's great. So how has the experience of communicating with other teachers through social media changed you? What have you learned in the process? I mean, it's just such a great collaborative learning environment. Um, through social media, I have met so many thought partners in this work. Um, and there are people who I can bounce ideas off of, even if we haven't met in person. Um, and some folks I have met in person, somebody who I consider a dear friend now um, is actually somebody who I just met through Instagram and we happen to live quite close to each other. Um, but I think, like I said before, when it feels like you're operating in a vacuum, knowing that you're not alone in the work um, and that you don't have to do it in isolation. And you also don't have to reinvent the wheel if you're an educator who's just starting out with you know, integrating social justice or anti-bias or anti-racism work in the classroom, um, that there are so many people out there who have already started to develop these practices that you can learn from and adapt their work to fit the needs of your own classroom. Thank you. So you have already done a TED Talk, which is amazing, and I will link it in the show notes for everyone listening. And now you're writing a book. So lots of exciting things are happening. Uh, what can we expect from the book and where can folks find it once it becomes available? Oh, okay. So it's not going to be available for quite a bit. The deadline to turn things in isn't until like spring of next year. Um, okay. Definitely trying to get things done quicker, but we will see. The writing process is something that's still pretty new for me. Um, but it's through Heinemann Publishing, and they are a big education publisher. So they produce a lot of curriculum and resource books for teachers like K through 12. 
Um, and the whole premise of the book is to address barriers or rather like excuses that educators might run into or might use that prevent them from engaging in social justice work with their students. Um, so maybe about a year ago, I put out a question on social media and just asked like, hey, teachers, if you're the person who wants to be doing this work, but you're not, why aren't you? Um, and I received hundreds of responses and was able to kind of sort those into like 10-ish categories, um, which form mm. the chapters of the book. Um, so each chapter is standalone, which actually makes the writing process a little bit easier because I can jump from chapter to chapter if I feel particularly stuck. Um, and try to just get ahead of questions like, you know, what if parents aren't supportive or what if my administration doesn't back me or what if I just teach math and science and I don't really understand how equity work um, connects to the subjects I'm teaching. Um, so topics like that and I try to give a lot of proactive strategies for educators to use as well as concrete examples of how the work has been done successfully either by myself or other teachers. Well, having worked with educators for a long time, I know there is such an appetite for this and particularly for those concrete examples that you mentioned. So um, so I'm super excited to read it and share it. This is Feminist Hot Dog, a feminist podcast. So I like to ask my guests about their relationship with the word feminism. So do you consider yourself a feminist? I absolutely do consider myself a feminist. And as much as I do, I still think that I am still so impacted by aspects of the patriarchal society that we're still living in that sometimes it's hard, like you need to check yourself. Um, but the more my understanding of this word has evolved, the more important I think it is that I do identify as somebody who is a feminist. So can you tell us a little bit about that evolution? And um, sometimes I ask this question in terms of what are some of the feminist mile markers in your journey? Sure. Um, I think when I was younger, I had a very, you know, baseline understanding of what feminism was. I thought it just meant somebody who thinks that men are men and women are equal and they should be treated equally and they should be paid equally. And those are things that I definitely still do believe. But I think having more of an intersectional lens to my feminism um, is something that I really, really value. So thinking about when I am advocating for other folks who identify as women, whether you are non-binary, if you are transgender, that I am also including aspects such as neurodiversity and ableism and age and things like that. Thinking about who am I including and my activism as a feminist and who am I leaving out? And I still think that even when women are trying to advocate for other women, sometimes we're still getting stuck in our ideas of what we think women should be like and what we think women should do. So thinking back to a lot of like, you know, toxic behaviors I had when I was a teenager, when I was younger, like being really critical about what other women were wearing in public for example, um, mm -hmm. growing up, like I didn't know many people who identified as Muslim. So if I went out and saw a woman wearing a hijab or a burqa and thinking like, huh, I wonder if like somebody is making her do that. Like that seems like a really oppressive practice instead of checking myself and thinking maybe she's representing herself exactly the way she wants to be represented. And this is a reflection of her faith and I should really stay in my own lane. 
Um, or if a woman was wearing something particularly like revealing or tight, like instead of thinking, wow, she really owns her own body and she has a lot of confidence thinking like, oh, she must just be looking for attention. You know, why doesn't she cover up? And those are just such damaging, like toxic thoughts to have, especially when you're somebody who thinks that you're a feminist and supporting other women. Um, a friend of mine, Kiana, who runs the Instagram account, How Not to Travel Like a Basic Bitch, does something fantastic. <laughs> She's wonderful. Um, you should totally have her on the show too. Um, she has a PhD. She has like multiple degrees. She's incredibly brilliant. And every like thousand followers she gets on her social media site, she posts like a pretty like revealing picture her, of herself and you can see her butt hanging out in a bathing suit and she looks great. But her whole idea is that you can have a PhD and you can dress however you want and you shouldn't be able to judge people's intelligence or ability or accomplishments just based on what they're wearing or how they look. And I love that so much. And just being able to learn from her has been such a process of questioning myself and unlearning certain thought patterns and things like that. Um, and also trying to take that lens when working with kids. Like I've had girls in class who will say proudly, like, you know, I went to the women's march, like they wear like little feminist t-shirts. But then I tell them, you know, if you're teasing a girl or anyone for their appearance, their clothing, like you're not actually a feminist. So being able to claim it, but then actually acting like one and speaking like one, it's something different. You need to be able to do both. Yes. Getting back to that, aligning your actions with your values uh, idea. So one of the reasons why I highlighted that consent activity in the first episode of Feminist Hot Dog is because I'm always looking for examples of feminism in action. And I thought that that was a great example. Um, I wonder if you could comment on what it means to you to be a feminist teacher, because I know that the teaching profession is largely female dominated and, and predominantly by white women. Um, but, but I don't necessarily think of it as a feminist profession, which I wish that I did and wish that I saw more examples of teachers bringing feminism into the classroom. So can you comment on what it means to be a feminist teacher in your view? I think to be a feminist teacher, you have to lead by example. Um, there are, are aspects of my job that where I want to take time to showcase and elevate and amplify women throughout history who look different, um, who come from different backgrounds, who have championed for different causes, um, and teach my students about these people and their lives to show, you know, you don't have to have the same background or look like somebody in order to care about them, in order to want to ensure that they are treated with dignity and with respect and receive justice. Um, and a lot of this work, I think, also transcends into the social emotional work that we do in classroom, um, really explicitly teaching about developing an emotional vocabulary, for example, or like with the consent work, like putting up boundaries and respecting boundaries and understanding that, um, you know, folks may look different from you, they may communicate differently, but at the end of the day, like we should all be here to like support each other. And I think a lot of this work is also super important with ra raising feminist boys too, getting away from gender roles and stereotyping and being able to have those conversations and point them out too. Um, because honestly, like the patriarchy is something that has 
been done to everybody, men included. Um, and it's really important That's for right. boys to understand that you can show emotion that you don't have to prescribe to this macho, like alpha male type of personality in order to respect women, to be a feminist or to consider yourself a man. I love it. Well, this is why everyone should read your book. I'm just so happy to hear that you were in the classroom for, so that's 10 years worth of kids who got to absorb these really empowering messages. So is there anything else about you or any projects that you're working on um, besides the big one um, that you would like our listeners to know about? Mm. I feel like I'm always dabbling in side hustles. Um, <laughs> actually, my friend Cody, uh, he and I are starting to work on a writing project together, focusing on stereotypes and biases that may prevent educators from discussing issues around LGBTQ identity um, or like queer, um, sorry, or introducing like queer folks to curriculum or having conversations about queer identity with students. Um, as being reflective of actual like racial and cultural biases. For example, like the mm. assumption that black and brown communities are inherently more homophobic than white communities and that teachers are using these excuses and assuming, well, the majority of my school are people of color and I know that a lot of them are pretty religious. So I'd rather actually not talk about these things because I'm assuming that they're not gonna be okay with it. Um, which is a trend that's been coming up a lot in my like consulting and workshop work with educators in school. So it's something that I think we want to also address. That sounds fabulous. And where can folks find and follow you? Um, I am by far the most active on Instagram. Handle is at Teach and Transform. Um, also have a website, teachandtransform.org that definitely needs some updating. Um, still have handles like on Facebook and Twitter, but I'm not as uh, active on there. Twitter can be really mean. I'm sure, I actually am not sure that my skin is thick enough for Twitter. I understand. Twitter can be a can be a hard place. So, all right, well, we'll come hang out with you on the gram. Thank you so much. Are you ready to talk about what made your feminist heart sing lately? Oh my goodness, I'm so ready. <laughs> okay. Good. Well, why don't you go first? I'd love to hear what you have to okay. say. So what made my feminist heart sing recently was watching Lizzo's performance on the MTV mm. Video Music Awards. I did oh. not know that I needed a giant thong-clad ass like in my life, <laughs> but clearly that was something that was missing. Um, her performance just brought me it brought me so much joy, like every single part of it. There was just so much self-love um, and seeing how other folks have reacted to her as well. Like I love that she is somebody who loves herself so beautifully. It is so unapologetic about who she is and that folks really seem to be loving her just for those reasons. Like I think that's amazing. Um, pretty much everything she does I think is fantastic. I'm kind of obsessed with her. <laughs> Um, but yeah, that performance in particular, oh my God, I loved it. <laughs> I feel the same way. The, the, the giant ass, the dancers. Um, I actually saw Lizzo not too long ago. She, um, she came to Atlanta and I what? bought a, a, I know I bought a really, really, really expensive ticket on StubHub cause I was late to the party and was like, I'm not going to miss this. Um, and I don't think I've ever been to a concert that, that was that loud. And it wasn't because 
she was loud, it was because people were screaming. Like every, I look, I look around and everybody would just have their mouths open and like these like primal screams of joy, just like erupting from the crowd. Cause she has that effect on people. It's, it's incredible. Yeah. I mean, she is magnetic and I hope she sticks around for a very, very, very long time. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I, well, then that's, what's beautiful about her too, is she's been around for a long time. So I feel like she will stick around for a long time because she's a true artist. I mean, this is what, this is who she is right? and I can't wait. I cannot wait to see what she does next. Like so many of the songs that people love came out like two, three years ago and are just starting mm-hmm. to get all this traction. So I can't wait for her next album. I know. Me too. I love it. Um, so what made my feminist heart sing lately, I love a good resistance story. Um, and one that I want to talk about comes out of the Afghani city of um, Kunduz. And it's about a radio station called Radio Roshani, which was founded by a woman named Sadiqa Sorzai. And Sadiqa started this station in 2008 um, and essentially, it's like a woman-run guerrilla radio station that features all women, sh- all shows about women, for women, um, with the goal of changing attitudes um, if in Afghanistan, not only about women, but also between women by fostering a greater sense of unity um, in, in the community that can, can hear the show. So when I first read about this, I was like, how is she pulling this off? And it, it's kind of an amazing story. She um, uh, predictably immediately began receiving threats uh, and her station has been attacked many times by the Taliban and others trying to silence her, but she has staunchly persisted in broadcasting. They're mainly uh, call-in shows that address a variety of topics like um, women's rights, education for girls, the issue of forced marriage, um, and also um, fostering and improving more um, connected and more productive relationships between women um, with a focus on uh, women who are wives in polygamous relationships, which uh, is an issue that is particularly compelling to Sadiqa um, because she feels like that's a site where um, a lot of women's empowerment work could be done um, locally. So in 2015, the Taliban took control of um, Kunduz and she had to flee and shut down the station. And when she returned, she discovered that it had been completely destroyed. All of her equipment in the station archives had been either destroyed or stolen, Um, but she rebuilt it and is back on the air. So this, this, (laughs) yeah, this woman is, beyond gutsy and i mean talk about living your values she is super super inspiring to me um so i'm i'm cheering for her i'm trying to think about ways um that i could possibly support her and this also reminded me and got me thinking about the long legacy of pirate radio stations and the roles that they have played in social movements um and in particular one that I studied in school was uh, Robert Williams, who was the author of Negroes with Guns. And he was exiled from the United States and broadcast from Cuba, um, a radio station called Radio Free Dixie that reached the southeastern United States during the civil rights movement. And so continued to be able to have an influence on the civil rights movement um, from exile, which is pretty cool. 
and um, Radio Insurgente, which was the voice of the Zapatista movement broadcast in Mexico from 2003 to 2009. Uh, and there are countless examples. Um, so I wanted to mention for listeners who are in or near New York City, there is a great exhibit about pirate radio that's running through September 29th. So by the time this episode airs, it will only be there for just a few more days, but it's called Resistance Radio, The People's Airwaves. And it's running at the Interference Archive in Brooklyn, which I highly suggest um, you check out anyway, even if you can't attend the exhibit. Um, the Interference Archive explores the relationship between cultural production and social movements. And so even if you can't visit in person, visit their website. It's super informative. Um, Interference Archive, I will also put that in the show notes and check it out. It will make your feminist revolutionary liberationist heart sing. That brings us to the Dear Feminist Hot Dog portion of the show where I ask my guests a question that I want to know the answer to that they are uniquely qualified to respond to. So are you ready? So ready. Okay. <laughs> Dear Feminist Hot Dog Liz, how do you write a book? <laughs> as, someone with, <laughs> as someone with a lot to say, how do you approach such a big project and make it manageable? And how do you stay motivated to keep going when you just don't want to write? Okay, so my process, just saying, is probably not the same as a lot of other people's process. When That's I have an idea, totally I want to fine. through with people. Um, I'm very lucky to have an editor whose job it is to tell me if an idea I have is worth exploring or not um, when it comes to this particular project. Um, but I think because um, the topic of like inclusion and equity and social justice and education is such a broad topic, I did get very overwhelmed with the different directions I could take this in when I first started. Um, I wanted to talk about everything. Like I wanted to have a chapter on like religion and a chapter on gender and a chapter on race. And like that's just doing too much, as my kids would tell me. Um, but I really have been astounded at how many um, like outlining and planning strategies that I learned as a student and that I'm still teaching to my students um, have really, really helped me out. Um, sometimes, you know, I'll get the urge to just sit and write at like 11, 12 o'clock at night. Um, but often, like, I really want to start to flush things out. So I have this pathway of understanding where I'm starting and where I can see where I'm going. Um, so using outlines and just adding bullet points constantly so I can keep track of my thoughts and update my thoughts. Um, I really actually like using Google Docs because other folks can so easily um, check out what I'm writing and leave comments or leave questions um, so I can constantly be updating and processing like while I'm writing. Um, and also just setting deadlines for myself. I'm a big deadline person. If I know that the deadline out there is very abstract. I might procrastinate and leave something to the very end. And I'll often tell my editor, hey, like, even if you're not going to read it at this date, can you give me this hard deadline for this chapter so I can hold myself accountable and make sure I get it done? Um, that's been really super helpful. And also creating some sort of structure where I can separate my personal life from my writing life. Um, in college, I could never do homework or study in my dorm room. I always had to go to the library. And I definitely feel myself still falling back on those habits as an adult writing this book. 
I'm super lucky to live within four blocks of our public library in the neighborhood. Um, so I've definitely become one of those library people where I show up with like my little seat cushion and like my thermos and like my snack box so I can get my good library seat. Um, but I find that if I tell myself that I'm going to physically go somewhere else to focus on this one thing for this number of hours per day, that way I can kind of compartmentalize my life a bit more and not feel like I constantly need to be writing, writing, writing when I need to be relaxing at home. Oh, that's fantastic advice. Do you have any suggestions for how to stay motivated when you just don't want to do it? I think if you can just give yourself small goals, like I'm going to write three to five paragraphs of this one section today. Maybe I'm not banging out like pages and pages and pages. Um, but if I can just set a goal and make sure that I have some evidence that I've met that goal at the end of the day, even if it's something small, it still helps me feel like I am moving in the direction I want to be going in. That's super helpful. I know we have a lot of creatives who listen to the podcast and have many, many different kinds of projects that they're working on. And, um, and I've had this conversation a lot with people who they're inspired, they're motivated, but then the actual process of sitting down and doing it seems really daunting to them. So I appreciate you sharing your story. Yeah, of course. All right. Well, that brings us to the Hot Dog Hall of Fame. And I'm so excited to hear about your inductee. Tell us about her. Okay. So I'm super excited because she is somebody that I only learned about maybe six or seven years ago, which makes me very sad because I think if I had known about her as a kid, I would have had like posters of her like all over my walls. Um, and the person who I want to elevate today is Yori Kuchiyama, um, who is an incredible or was an incredible political activist um, who dedicated her life to advocating for social change and human rights and Growing up, like when Asian American history and identity is certainly not highlighted in the majority of curricula and textbooks, you really lack those types of role models when you identify as Asian American yourself. So I was all too, I was so, so thrilled to learn about her um, when I moved out to California. Um, so Yuri was born in like the 20s here in California. And so after the bombing of Pearl Harbor, um, she's Japanese American, her father had like just gotten out of surgery. And I learned that he was arrested and detained in a hospital. And he was the only Japanese person in the hospital. And the people there actually hung a sheet around him that said prisoner of war. Really, Whoa. really messed up. Um, and so there was all of this racism and anti-Japanese sentiment going on. And so after Roosevelt signed executive order 9066, Yuri Kuchiyama and her family got sent to a concentration camp in Arkansas for two years. And also her father passed away. So she is growing up in this time where she and her family are being targeted. Her, her family has been treated with incredible injustice and her father has died. And so clearly after she was released, she's going to do something about it because she's a badass. Um, so she moved to New York, um, married Bill Kochiyama, that's her husband's name, who was in the all Japanese American uh, combat unit of the U.S. Army. So two very badass Asian Americans. And in New York, um, Yuri and her husband started holding all of these cool open houses for activists like in their apartments. Um, and it didn't matter if you were Asian American, like she invited folks from who are black, um, who identified as Latin X, like she did all of this activism in Harlem in the 60s. And 
really just open herself and her life to advocating for anybody who is suffering from civil or human rights abuses. Um, so she protested against the war in Vietnam. She advocated for ethnic studies. Um, she was just incredible. And I love that since there is still so much an anti-Blackness sentiment within the Asian community, that she is this incredible Asian American woman who advocated so strongly and fought for Black liberation. Um, and in the 60s, she actually met Malcolm X and they became friends and they actually did a lot of um, political work together. And she was actually present when Malcolm X was murdered. I think she's actually in wow. that photo from Life magazine where like she's cradling his head in her arms. Um, and so for oh the rest gosh. of her life, she, she's incredible. Oh my goodness, I love her so much. Um, she worked to ensure reparations for Japanese Americans who were put in concentration camps during the war. Um, she spoke out on behalf of political prisoners, if they were Black or Puerto Rican or Native American or Asian American or even white. Um, and I, again, like from the perspective of intersectionality, I love that she didn't just confine herself to helping people who just look like her. Like she was there for everyone and anyone. And I wish more people knew about her because she's such a badass lady. I love it. Well, thank you so much, Yuri Kochiyama. Welcome to the Feminist Hot Dog Hall of Fame. We will do all that we can to spread your story far and wide. Thank you. <laughs> well, Liz, thank you for joining me today and for including us in your journey. I can't wait to read your book. And we will definitely let everyone know as soon as it is available for purchase. And I really appreciate you spending this time with me today. I've been waiting to get on here for a while, so I'm very happy. <laughs> <laughs> Good. I'm glad we were able to make it happen. And I want to um, give a special thank you also to the folks who have been asking how they can support the show, which I really appreciate. So I wanted to just take a minute here at the end to talk about that. Uh, one way is to pledge support via Patreon, and you do that by just going to patreon.com and searching for Feminist Hot Dog. Another is to subscribe to the show and also to rate the show on Apple Podcasts. That goes a long way toward allowing the magic podcast algorithm to lift Feminist Hot Dog up in the rankings. And of course, follow on all the social medias, Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter, even though it's mean sometimes. And sign up for the newsletter at feministhotdog.com. And also just remember that this show is for you. So if there's something that you want me to talk about or an idea that you have, drop me a line at any of those places and I would love to talk about it. Feminist Hot Dogs theme music is by Ava Luna and Loyalty Freak Music. And our sound editing is by Square Lightning Design. Until next time, listeners, love yourself and love your buns. Goodbye. This has been a production of NOCO FM.